You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. Jake Sullivan was most recently the senior policy advisor in Secretary Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Before that, he had a series of uh, senior positions within Washington. He was the deputy chief of staff for Secretary Clinton, the director of the State Department uh, Office of Policy Planning, I think the youngest ever director of the State Department Policy Planning Office, uh, the national security advisor for Vice President uh, uh, Biden. And then uh, as part of that, he worked on a whole range of issues, but including playing a pretty central role in Iran's nuclear negotiations. Uh, Since leaving the government, he now teaches at Yale Law School and uh, and is spending time here. He is a Minnesota native, uh, graduate of Yale College, Yale University. And it's a pleasure to this because Jake and I have actually known each other since college. Uh, So it's been a long, uh, long, long time. It really is a pleasure to welcome you to much sunnier uh, haunts than New Haven. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. I'm really happy to be here. And we knew each other in college when Matt used to beat me in debate. So we will not be debating up here. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a rule for coming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so, so Jake, to start, there's a lot of topics we could talk about. I think, but to start off, uh, let's take back to your time in the Obama administration. So first of all, you worked pretty uniquely on almost every issue of consequence before the president, before the administration. So as you reflect on this, is how would you define or characterize the Obama doctrine if there is an Obama doctrine? And how would that, is that Obama doctrine different from what uh, a President Hillary Clinton doctrine would have been? Mm-hmm. Well, um, President Obama famously defined his own doctrine in uh, an interview he gave to Jeff Goldberg in The Atlantic, uh, which he summed up as, don't do stupid shit. Um, and uh, then Hillary famously, in a subsequent interview with Jeff Goldberg, said, don't do stupid shit. It's not an organizing principle for American foreign policy. And the two of them actually had a bit of a public back and forth about this before they reportedly went to Martha's Vineyard and hugged it out. Um, <laughs> that, that was the direct quote from his spokesperson about how that all got resolved. Uh, but I think it actually says something important about the difference between the two of them on foreign policy. It's, I'm, I teach at a law school, so I now think about language a lot more. And the way that I would describe the difference between Obama and Clinton is that they would say the same words in describing American foreign policy, but invert what comes before and after the but. So Obama would say, um, America has to lead in the world, but we have to be prudent and recognize the limitations of our power. Hillary would say, we have to be prudent and recognize the limitations of our power, but America must lead in the world. And that seems like a subtle difference, but it's, it's in practice less subtle. I think Hillary had more of a forward lean when it came to the use of American power abroad. Syria was an example where she was more, uh, as Secretary of State and then as a candidate for president, invested in even limited uses of American military power to shape the environment to try to produce a diplomatic solution. Whereas Obama was somewhat more mindful uh, of what the potential costs and consequences of American military action there were than than she would have been. So that kind of sets up the difference between them. My own view of the Obama doctrine, though, is not what 
people traditionally think when they think of President Obama. I actually think, funnily enough, he looked at the world and borrowed a phrase from the Bush administration, coalitions of the willing, as his means of carrying out American foreign policy. So, so his, his view of American leadership was, you look at the world and you say, we got a whole bunch of problems that no one country can solve on their own, but that cannot be solved without the United States. So how is the US going to pull together a group of actors to go about solving the problem? Collecting loose nuclear material around the world, Obama starts the Nuclear Security Summit. Deal with human trafficking or peacekeeping, Obama brings 50 countries together each at the UN General Assembly in New York, heads of state, to set up an effort to do that. Take on global climate change, Obama starts with the emerging powers in Europe and figures if we can cut a deal among that group, then we can spread it to the entire world, and that's how you ultimately get to Paris. So I think he was much more activist and engaged as a leader in the world than he has gotten credit for because of the Syria issue. Uh, but he had a particular mindset about how America should lead that, that sort of put us as chairman of the board of sorts um, and, and you know, the agenda setter and the convener, but ultimately successful through collective action working with other countries. It's well. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned you know, this chairman of the board approach, which is interesting, something I hadn't heard before. You know, if, you, if you take a step back and think about an alternative view of history, Given how Secretary Clinton and President Obama were different, if Secretary Clinton had won the presidency in 2008, how do you think America's foreign policy would have been different? I mean, are there things that you can think of that if she had been at the top of the table in the Situation Room, there would have been different outcomes from where Obama's instincts and inclinations were? I think the two biggest places that you would have seen a divergence would have been on Syria and Russia. Um, on Syria, Hillary Clinton, along with Leon Panetta and David Petraeus, argued for a more aggressive policy in 2012 as a means of trying to produce a diplomatic outcome. President Obama was reluctant to do that. Uh, and so I think you would have seen the course of that conflict shape up differently. Now, depending on whether you think the use of American power in Syria would have been more positive or more negative, it could have been better or worse, but it would have been different. And then on Russia, Hillary, like Obama, was very invested in the reset in the early years and felt that it produced tangible progress for the United States. We got Russia on board with sanctions against Iran and North Korea. We got them to accept uh, the use of their transit lines across Russia to get uh, weapons to our troops, weapons and supplies to our troops in Afghanistan. We got the Russians to sign on to um, a series of trade measures that ultimately paved the way for them to get into the WTO. And we got them to sign on to a new START treaty that allowed us to continue to uh, keep the number of Russian missiles uh, at its lowest level since the 1950s and give us insight into their, uh, into their program. All of those were material, meaningful successes in the first 18 months. As soon as Putin said, I'm coming back to the presidency, Hillary sent a memo to President Obama that basically said, watch out. This whole thing is going to go in a totally different direction. And I think she would have taken a different approach. Now, of course, we can come to <laughs> the ultimate consequences of all of that uh, that played out last year in the election. But I think those would have been two areas where you would have seen um, different styles from the two of them. But on most major issues, it's not like Hillary would have represented a dramatic departure. She was there with him in Copenhagen to set the path for the Paris Agreement. She built the sanctions coalition on Iran, but also helped launch the diplomacy that led to the deal. She cared passionately about a lot of these transnational 
issues that Obama invested his own personal capital into, young leaders, uh, and uh, human rights issues, issues related to peacekeeping, et cetera. So I think the differences between them can be overstated. Yeah, I mean, on counterterrorism, other Middle Easters, I mean, she was right at the center, and, and I think a lot on lockstep. I, I want to you know, go right into some of the more controversial part. And you mentioned Russia, of course. So Russia became a, sort of a key player in our election. Uh, the policy differed quite a bit at the end of the second to the Obama administration. So you left working at the White House. You left working for Vice President Biden, I think, what, about two years before the end of the administration, then went over to the campaign. Right. But when you're working for Vice President Biden, you were in the catbird seat to be in the Oval Office with the President every morning at the President's daily intelligence briefing from the CIA. I mean, that is the place when the most difficult and most vexing national security issues are hashed out. If you were still in the PDB every morning, as it's called, and in the Oval Office, what would you have recommended Obama do about Russia and that last year of the administration when evidence started coming out about Russian interference in the US electoral system? Well, I guess I would start by saying that I'm sympathetic to the position he found himself in, which is this is a fundamental national security issue, a hostile foreign power trying to intervene to affect the outcome of the US election and to negatively impact our most precious asset, which is our democratic process. So that is a national security issue par excellence. At the same time, however, it's also a political issue. Because he is a Democratic president. There is a Democratic candidate running for the presidency. And anything he does will ultimately be viewed through a political prism. So it's easy for those of us on the outside to say, oh, man, why didn't you do more? You should have stepped up, et cetera. But he was operating according to certain political constraints that I think all fair-minded people have to recognize. That being said, when it became clear that the Russian effort had shifted from the standard practice of hacking emails for purposes of learning more about the personalities involved or the issue positions of the campaigns, which the Chinese had done against Obama in 2008 and 2012, which the Russians had done in the past as well. When it became clear that this was going to be weaponized and that active measures were going to be taken to try to undermine our electoral process, undermine confidence in our democracy, and put a thumb on the scale for Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton, I think that in hindsight, uh, the Obama administration probably could have done more to send a clear message to Putin that we were not going to tolerate that kind of behavior and that we could raise the costs on them for continuing to pursue it. I mean, this played out like a slow motion train wreck over the course of months. Uh, you had basically in the spring the intelligence community beginning to come to an understanding of what the Russians were up to. And uh, it was not until October 7th that the DHS and the DNI finally put out a statement that said, you know, we assign responsibility to the Russians for what is happening in, in the campaign. And when did you become aware from the campaign that this was a real problem? So in the spring, I, I was operating according to that same sensibility that, oh, this is what they do. You know, this is what the Russians and Chinese do. They get into your emails. They want to know what's going on. They're trying to, this is intelligence gathering, but this isn't a fundamental departure from what we've seen before. That was my view in the spring. It was not until the summer when uh, they began releasing the emails that they had hacked from the DNC that it became apparent that, that a whole different game was afoot. 
And so in July, I went out and made a series of public statements about how our national security was under threat, about how the administration and our intelligence community had to take this seriously and do something about it. And through the months of July, August, September, and October, our voices got increasingly shrill from the campaign side, like, please help. You know, we need, we need to stop them from doing what they're doing. Mm. But, you know, I understand why the administration found itself in the position that it was in. It's just unfortunate that they were unable. And I think this will never happen again in the same way. Well, I take that back. With Trump as president, who knows? But, but had Obama had another go around, having seen all this play through, I think he probably would have chosen a different course over those months, um, having seen it once. And what is that different course? I mean, I mean, I appreciate, and I think those in the room appreciate too, the very difficult situation in the sense that if a Democratic president takes certain steps, if she does win the election, then potentially you've corrupted or cast some spell on the election itself. You're sort of helping serve the Russia's goal, Russia's goals. But so knowing, I guess it's always easy to say knowing what we know now, but what should the administration have done against Russia? So I think there are three, I think there are three steps that, that uh, are lessons learned. Again, I, I don't want to sit up here and I'm not holding the administration responsible for the outcome of the election. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was on us, that was on our campaign. Um, but I think looking forward, there are three basic steps that are necessary to fight back. And actually, Macron's campaign in France figured some of this stuff out. The first is that the president could have gone on television and looked the American people in the eye and said, our nation is under attack. President Obama is a person of great integrity and credibility. And I think if he had educated the American people from his bully pulpit, um, that would have had a material impact on the way both the voters and the press understood this issue. The press really didn't grasp what was going on. They looked at us like we were wearing tinfoil hats when we kept saying the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. And it wasn't until you got that unclassified report in January that laid out in living color. And for those of you who haven't read it, it's worth reading. It's hair-raising stuff just how extensive the Russian information warfare campaign was in this election. And the most hair-raising part about that report, um, this is a small digression from, from the other two points, is they are actively learning from their experiences so that they can perfect their techniques for future efforts down the road. So we will be looking at this in 2018 and 2020 and beyond, and we have to pay attention. So one is the bully pulpit. Second is to basically develop a series of countermeasures against the Russians um, and say, to the extent that we see this behavior continue, and we could monitor it on a daily basis, there will be escalating costs until such point as you cease and desist. Now, a lot of those are going to live in the realm of the dark arts that yep. you know, we can't uh, really talk about. But there are probably additional sanction steps and other things that, that could have been done in the, in the light of day on this. And then I would say the third is for the administration to begin to think about what are the specific means by which you stop some of these techniques from playing out. Now, that requires a serious conversation with the tech community mm -hmm. uh, because of the platforms upon which a lot of this happens. Um, but there are, were also, I think, available to the administration working with the campaigns and the political committees ways that they could have helped work the defense side of this to a more significant extent. Mm -hmm. 
So all of that's just to say, let's not relive what happened last year. Let's look ahead, but let's recognize that this is likely to face us again. Uh, th the Russians were absolutely brazen about their efforts in the French election. Now it turned out they weren't very effective at it. Um, but I think we will face this down the road. And what we really need to do is look at last year in a dispassionate, apolitical way and say, what can we learn from it and how do we fix it? And how do we do it, particularly when we have a president who to this day, when asked about it, says, well, it could have been a Chinese uh, effort. It could have been a 400-pound guy <laughs> sitting on his mother's bed. Yeah. And you know that is a big problem. Yeah. Because for the commander in chief and the President of the United States to put his head in the sand on what is a clear and present danger to American democracy. There are other steps and other measures available to us, even notwithstanding that. But um, this is something looking ahead that really concerns me uh, on the list of threats facing the United States. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I mean, you mentioned two really interesting things, which I think are great for this audience. Is one, we need to be looking forward and ahead. So what do you do about some of these threats in the, in the future? And then also referring to the dark arts, you know, which is a part of American power we don't talk about very much, particularly Democrats don't talk about who you've worked for. And knowing we're still in an, obviously in an unclassified public setting, what if you could talk a little bit about your, what are your reflections now on American power now? You know, I mean, if there was like a Sullivan doctor now that we're talking about, you know, that is your Democrat, you spent time in these administrations, Democrats are, you know, talk about using power, but probably not in the most forceful ways that people might think. Right. In your time out of government, out of the campaign, how are you reflecting and thinking about some of this? I think the biggest problem with the design of American foreign policy over the last 25, 30 years is that we have invested heavily in our military uh, tools. We've shifted which of the military tools we use, but we've invested heavily in perfecting uh, and enhancing them. And we've thought of diplomacy as being the kind of under-resourced follow-up that comes in after the military has done what it does. And I think that we need to invert the relationship between force what and diplomacy. What do you diplomacy. mean by that? What I mean by that is diplomacy backed by force as a fundamental thrust for the use of American power is the way that we are most likely to be successful in producing the outcomes we want. I'll give you two examples. The first is the Iran nuclear deal. As you know well from the perch that you sat at, Tom Donilon in the White House, working with Hillary Clinton, Bob Gates, and others, designed an all-of-government strategy across every vector of American power to put pressure on the Iranian regime, including force posture, including the threat of military action, as well as economic coercion, intelligence, and the like, to basically say, uh, your options, Iran, are limited to this diplomatic box. But then we actually <coughs> invested heavily in the diplomacy, not just directly with Iran, but with all of the partners, all of the actors who themselves could put some pressure on Iran. And over the course of years, we built an outcome that allowed us to put a lid on Iran's nuclear program without firing a single shot. That is a pretty unusual use of American power. We tend to do, particularly in the Middle East, is if the big army is not available to us, we go to the special forces and send some of those guys. If special forces aren't really available to us, we go to the drones, mm -hmm. send in some of those. And then we say, well, we're also going to have to have a civilian side to this strategy. But we always kind of say that as, a, as an and rather than thinking, OK, let's start from where the civilian part of the strategy ends up and then how 
uh, the military can support it. The second example that I would give is this chemical weapons uh, issue in Syria. Now, I was a supporter of striking Syria in response to chemical weapons in 2013. And I was a supporter when, when Donald Trump did it this year. What I find interesting about it is that I believe that if the two men, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, had been in the reverse positions, they each would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. That Donald Trump in 2013 would not have struck and would have cut the deal, and that the Barack Obama of 2017, having had the deal not followed by the Syrians, would have struck. But in effect, what you had there, leaving aside the process mm -hmm. screw-ups, I think it would be fair to say, that led to a kind of lean, we're going to strike, oh no, we're going to Congress, et cetera, which was, we are going to use military force against Syria unless you give up your chemical weapons. And they give up huge stocks of them that could have fallen into the hands of Hezbollah or, or ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Um, and then when we find out, oh, they didn't perfectly comply with the deal, then you hit them. Then you hit them. Those are examples for me of how American power actually works most effectively. In both instances, we had at the front of our mind, what does a deal look like? What is the diplomacy required to produce a better outcome? And I just feel like we have not tended to get that balance right, particularly in the Middle East over the past many years. And this administration, I think, has learned all the wrong lessons because their response to the way things have unfolded over the last quarter century is to say what we really need to do is add 10% to the military budget and cut the development and diplomacy budget by 30%. Well, if all you have is a hammer, then every problem in the world is going to look like a nail. And I think that is what we are in danger of confronting if they actually follow through and gut the State Department and USAID the way that they've talked about doing. You know, it's interesting. I mean, on, on the Iran point, in particular, I think that what you said is is too often underappreciated. You know, obviously, I mean, I was at the Defense Department at that time when we worked together and heading up Middle East policy as a civilian. And I think what's really underappreciated is the day that I stepped into my office the first time, I received moon charts from my intelligence briefer. So why the hell would you give someone the moon charts about? Well, because the concern was that when there was a full moon, the Israelis were less likely to attack Iran without telling us uh, because uh, you thought through what would happen. And there is a very real chance that there was going to be some type of military conflict with Iran at the time you were talking about it. And I, and I think what you said has two points. First, the United States was very committed to use force if necessary, which I think was Underappreciated. I mean, this is the president who ordered a military operation against Osama bin Laden when one of his main briefers said he thought there was a six, only a 40 to 60 percent chance bin Laden was in this compound of Abbottabad. And also, uh, the Iranians knew that we had a break glass plan that we talked about, that if the negotiations that you helped to lead did not work out, yeah. that there was some of the most advanced military hardware in history in the Middle East poised to be used if anyone had thought about that. That's not really what you think about as a democratic, which I think is, but I think the, the conventional wisdom of feeling the public, they don't think about that as a core tenor of what a Democrat's foreign policy would be. Right. Well, I guess I would just say, you know, we have that hardware, why don't we just go use it? That would be the wrong way to think about. Mm -hmm. So what, is, what should a Democrat think? What should someone who believes in the progressive ideals of American foreign policy, who thinks, you know, our ultimate goal here is not to just go around 
bombing places and starting wars, but it's to produce durable outcomes that enhance peace and security. Having those weapons is, I think, a very positive and yeah. important thing, but only if it comes alongside a prudent, sensible policy that is designed to put diplomacy first. And to do that, you really need to resource your diplomats. So I'll just give you one more example, which uh, Matt can attest because he spent time at DOD. The commander of CENTCOM, Central Command, uh, which Jim Mattis was uh, before ending up as, as Secretary of Defense, um, or, or before his most important job as, as someone here at Stanford, and then <laughs> his step down to the Pentagon. Um, so the commander of Central Command is a four-star general. The Assistant Secretary for Near East Affairs at the State Department, which covers not exactly the same region, but roughly the same region, the Middle East, um, is also a four-star equivalent in the US system. So they are equal on the organizational chart. When the commander of CENTCOM shows up in Riyadh, say, he flies in on a 757 with a staff of 40, most of them colonels or brigadiers or whatever, mm -hmm. his own communications equipment, his own you know, marching band, not really, but you know, I mean, a real entourage. When the Assistant Secretary for Near East Affairs shows up later that same day in Riyadh, he or she flies coach, and maybe, if they're lucky, got the funding to bring their special assistant along with them, but otherwise is just carrying their own bags. If you are sitting in Riyadh, and you're looking at the United States and saying, who's got the power here? Who's calling the shots here? As pretty easy answer. And that has, I think, a psychological impact around the world uh, where I don't think we've elevated. Now, I don't mean, you know, maybe the answer is just give all the diplomats planes and then we'll have solved the problem. I don't mean that. It's, it's a more of a, you know, a tangible example of some larger factor at play here that, that I actually think the United States would do well to think seriously about how to correct over time. No, it's very true. I mean, I, I was privileged to travel to the Middle East probably a dozen times with then General Mattis before Secretary Mattis. And there are many reasons to do that. You know, a military civilian counterpart. But the other thing is, it sure beat middle seat coach uh, on a 14-hour flight from DC uh, to Kuwait. Right. You, you travel in a pretty high class right. uh, with them. You know, Jake. One, you know, it's interesting what you said about the the doctrine of foreign policy. I have a, a question that takes things in a different direction. Is I think this administration aside, there is often more continuity in foreign policy uh, between parties than I think is commonly. Understood. This is, I think, a, a striking exception in history. But are there? What are the examples you think of where you think there actually would have been continuity between what Trump has done and what Secretary Clinton would have done if she had been president? You mentioned Syria, yeah. of course. Are there any other examples you think that actually this is kind of what America would be doing regardless of who is president, or, or are there not others? I, I do think reality is a much larger factor in American foreign policy than, and I hate to say this as a policymaker, because it'd be nice if it was just the decisions we made around the, the table that dictated events. But as it turns out, probably the single biggest actor in American foreign policy is just the real world and what it imposes upon American decision makers. North Korea is a great example of this. Uh, you know, the natural instinct when you're out of power, the other parties 
controls the White House is to criticize them for, oh, they, they haven't stopped the missile tests or, you know, they, they haven't figured out how to yeah. denuclearize North Korea yet. I can't bring myself to do that because we would have faced exactly the same impossible, wicked problems with North Korea that this administration is facing. And I don't think our policy would have looked terribly different from this administration's on North Korea. We would have examined a circumstance in which, yes, you want to get China to do more, but no, China can't be the answer by itself. Uh, yes, you want to increase the pressure and put all options on the table, but no, you don't want to start a war that could lead to the death of a million people in and around Seoul. And, on down, and yes, you want to stop uh, the march to a nuclear-tipped ICBM that can reach the continental United States. But how do you do it? What are your real options? I think there's a number of examples like this of front-page foreign policy issues where, in fact, the, the choices available to the United States aren't dictated by ideology or by the president's particular view, mm. but by practical constraints and then opportunities that might come along that you can seize. There are other areas, though, where we're more in the affirmative building space where I think Hillary and Trump would have diverged substantially. Climate change is a great example of that. I mean, the fact that it is currently under contemplation that they will pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, I think, is just an enormous self-inflicted wound to American leadership and, frankly, to the world, uh, just as one example. The fact that they are looking at ways to undermine or unravel the Iran deal similarly. But uh, on some of these larger vexing security issues, the fight against ISIS, the North Korea nuclear issue, managing the rise of China, uh, I don't feel like you would have seen as dramatic a divergence. What, now, the big question, right now in Washington, the parlor game is all about the kind of normalization of this presidency. Oh, he's, he's becoming more conventional. The people around him are having some impact. But I don't think we can lose sight of the fact that he is fundamentally not normal. Mm -hmm. And he's the commander in chief. And so, I don't think you can just write off his statements and bizarre interludes and wild swings on issues uh, as kind of noise. I think they have an impact. I actually believe that they are undermining and hollowing out American leadership in the world in their own right. And if a crisis actually hits, not something that we choose, like whether or not to pull out of Paris, but a crisis that is forced upon us, I don't have confidence that we're going to have a normal conventional response to it, because I don't think you can count on this president uh, to do anything in that vein. Hmm. We're gonna, I'm going to move into taking some questions from the audience in, in a few minutes. Uh, <coughs> but before I do, you know, Jake, we've talked a lot about the many challenges in US foreign policy, which, which is just the nature of this inbox you wake up from. But we probably spend less time thinking about opportunities. So I sort of have two questions. One. Where are the opportunities you think that were missed during your time in the Obama administration? And then also, what are the greatest opportunities we have right now? You know, if, if you were sitting in the White House playing a central role making foreign policy right now. So I think, I think the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity that US foreign policy faces right now, the thing that should be the number one issue, not just for the domestic policy establishment, but the national security 
apparatus as well, is the answer to the fundamental question facing the United States and every other advanced economy in the world, which is, where are the future sources of growth going to come from, and how are we going to structure our economy in ways that actually deliver benefits to the middle class? Hmm. I think that is the existential question facing America, Europe, Japan, frankly, China, too, over time as well. And I think a missed opportunity in the Obama administration, and something that is not, I think, central to the way McMaster and Mattis are thinking right now, but should be, is how are we structuring our priorities in our dealings with other countries, our relationships with other countries, our whole national security strategy, so that, in effect, it becomes a grand strategy for the middle class. Hmm. And if you were to ask that question, if that was the number one question on the minds of foreign policymakers, how would things look different? In international economic policy, it's easy to see how things would look different. <coughs> Trade would probably become less of a central factor, and tax policy and antitrust and competition policy would become much more important. The fact that right now corporations, the wealthy, can move money around the world fairly freely to shield it from the revenue basis of advanced economies to be able to deal with some of their social problems, that's a problem we can solve through international cooperation. It's not really high on anyone's list. Same thing that's happening with the extraction of monopoly of rents in many different industries that a more sensible 21st century version of antitrust or competition policy could solve for. So on the international economic side, it's fairly straightforward. I think President Obama had an instinct about this with the pivot to Asia. He recognized that much of the history of the 21st century, particularly when it comes to economics, is going to be written in Asia. And he knew that if we weren't putting a greater priority there, it would come at a cost to us, to our economy, to our future prosperity. But I do think TPP was a missed opportunity to move beyond the traditional FTA model to really deal with the issues that are afflicting uh, working families in our middle class right now. And then that takes us to things like the counterterrorism, industrial complex that is built up in the United States, the amount of effort and money and manpower that we all saw being invested into this fight. We have to keep America safe. But are we allocating our resources in a sensible way as against what I consider to be this much larger problem we are facing? So I don't have the answer to this question, but I believe that it is the, it is the profound question of our time. And we're not going to solve it just through domestic policy. We are going to have to solve it through America leading a conversation among the world's advanced economies about how collectively we take on these challenges. Hmm. And they're challenges that emerge from technology, from uh, changing expectations, the changing nature of the family. It's, I mean, there's a thousand different factors that are driving this. But I was really struck by a piece that uh, Robert Cohane wrote in Foreign Affairs about a week ago. Uh, Robert Cohane sort of founded the school of, of liberal institutionalism, of this notion that the United States could build a set of global institutions and a rising tide would lift all boats. And he basically said, you know, since the early 80s, it hasn't really worked out that way. I mean, so this is like a father of mm. the American-led yeah. liberal world order saying something's not right. And part of what was at play in the 2016 election was the American people sensing that, often in you know, troubling <coughs> expressions. But that, to me, is, the, is a huge question. And I just feel like you have economists talking about it, and you have strategists who say, like, we love TPP because they're taught, like, you have to say yeah. trade agreements are good. But 
economists and strategists are not coming together to actually answer this question. In a real yeah, way. I mean, it's interesting. I, I think most people, if you asked about it, would not talk about the intersection between our domestic economic growth strategy and foreign policy and seeing them as, as interrelated as you described. It, it, it's interesting here, too, because you know, you're in Silicon Valley now. Stanford is poised in this very interesting position where a lot of the questions that we've been talking about, at least from my experience being here, are talked about in a very different way. Right. You know, and so, for example, is when you're talking about some of these debates about trade and global competition, tax policy, monopoly power, a lot of conversation now is what will artificial intelligence do about some of these jobs? There is a race between global competition and the power of the machines and which ones will create more problems right now. Yep. You know, if you are a Silicon Valley company, for example, you often don't see American foreign policy and American domestic policy as separate because you are thinking about how American innovation can move into new markets and deal with these things at the same time. And so, you know, you had dealt with some of this in the in the campaign, but I know you haven't spent as much time out here. But from your time, are there thoughts about what you think either Washington can learn from Silicon Valley, from what you saw there, or maybe from how you saw Silicon Valley from Washington? What Silicon Valley needs to better understand from Washington, or what Silicon Valley can learn from Washington in turn? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, to, to my point about this kind of existential question facing our economy, machine learning and AI lie at the core of it. Are we looking at a fundamentally different inflection point <coughs> where technological advances don't yield increasing productivity that ultimately yield increasing growth, as we've always seen in the past, or not? And brilliant people are on both sides of that conversation. But what is certain is that there is going to be a lot of people who lose out as this transformation happens. And one of the things that Washington hasn't gotten right is we just sort of tend to think of these things in distributional terms. Well, there's going to be absolute gains, and then we can take care of the losers. But we don't actually think through all the consequences of that or what it actually means to, quote unquote, take care of the losers. So I think one of the, the ways in which Washington and Silicon Valley could actually lead not just an American conversation on this, but a global conversation on this, is to sit down and figure out what is likely to be the impact of all of this on the future of the workforce, on the nature of middle-skilled jobs going forward, on the distribution of opportunity across the spectrum. And I think Silicon Valley is actually ahead of Washington in terms of thinking through the second and third and fourth order consequences of this. So Washington would do well to be out here engaging that conversation. At the same time, it seems to me that efforts to think about how you take the, uh, the, the brain power, the innovation, the incubation of ideas here in Silicon Valley and find ways to distributed across the United States. And I know that there are VC and other efforts under, uh, underway to do this. But we need to create more of the Silicon Valley sensibility in more parts of our country so that it's not all concentrated in one place uh, or in a few places. And uh, I think Washington inherently members of Congress recognize that because they want a new Silicon Valley to be in their district or their state. But the question is, for the entrepreneurs who have created this ecosystem, this unique ecosystem, how do we think about geographic distribution of all of the goods that are so well concentrated here right now? Is there something that can be done without disrupting this ecosystem that's so central 
uh, to answer this question. I think that's something that's going to become increasingly important as we go forward because the only solution to moving through these technological phases is going to be acclimating people to the changes. And that's going to require more know-how, more literacy with technology, more interaction with technology in more parts of America, or this is going to be very disruptive. The, the AI machine learning revolution mm -hmm. is going to be hugely disruptive to the rest of the country. And something that people aren't really anticipating get ahead of. Right. I, I mean, one thing that you said is, I feel like when we were at the White House and the administration, Silicon Valley could, uh, could sort of do no bad, right? You know, I mean, if you had worked for Google and you brought these innovations out here in, this is where innovation great things are happening. And now, both with the election war, the tide is turning in a sense, yeah. where there is a sense of Silicon Valley and these tech companies are behaving more like more traditional companies, which sometimes do great things for business, other times they don't. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.